and welcome back to another episode of Interpreting India. 2022 has so far been defined by yet another variant and wave of COVID-19, unprecedented geopolitical events that are likely to have far-reaching consequences and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will need to confront in the coming decade. I'm your host Priya, and this week we will be taking a closer look at the use and impact of China's state-sponsored CBDC, the digital yuan. The digital yuan is a centralized cash-like digital currency. The People's Bank of China, which is the Chinese central bank, and digital yuan operating institutions, which include some of the largest state-owned banks, Chinese tech giants like Alibaba and Tencent, and even some MNCs, have conducted large-scale pilot programs in multiple cities within China over the last couple of years. The 2022 Winter Olympics hosted by Beijing in February this year was originally planned as the grand international debut for the digital yuan, focused on international athletes and thousands of tourists that were supposed to attend the games. Those plans, however, went sideways with yet another outbreak of COVID-19 pandemic. Under a zero COVID policy aimed at halting any transmission of the virus, Beijing adopted a closed-loop system under which the 11,000 Olympic participants were sealed off from the general public. Of all the current CBDC pilots, it is perhaps fair to say that the digital yuan elicits significant interest given China's economic heft and geopolitical ambitions. In this episode of Interpreting India, we will delve into the debate surrounding China's digital yuan. Why did China introduce it? How does it work? What are its domestic and international implications? To discuss these questions, we have with us Robert Green. Robert is a non-resident scholar in the Cyber Policy Initiative and Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. His research focuses on Chinese financial sector trends and on topics at the nexus of cyberspace governance, global finance, and national security. Robert has worked extensively on the global implications of China's central bank digital currency. Robert, welcome to Interpreting India. Delighted to have you with us. Well, thanks. Let's start at the very top for our listeners. Could you tell us a little bit about what exactly the digital yuan is, and why is China pursuing it? Yes, so the、uh, ECNY or the digital yuan、um, has been a an idea for for many years amongst people at the PBOC.、Uh, the history goes back、uh, to the to the mid 2010s, and and, and now、uh, most recently in 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 mid 2020 or early 2020, I should say,、uh, the You you had the the piloting、uh, at first of of several、uh, ECNY launches, right? And so that that took place in a number of smaller,、uh, I mean, in a number of cities, I should say. And subsequently, you've seen the pilots expand to a broader range of cities. And now the the PBOC is、uh, looking at a、uh, third round of pilots. So the most recent round of pilots was what was called ten plus one. So it was ten. Uh, Chinese cities plus、uh, the Beijing Winter Olympics、um, and Beijing more broadly、um, was the official way it was referred to as ten plus one, and uh, now uh, the the、uh, PBOC is looking at expanding that. So I mean, really, when you're when we talk about the ECNY, it's、uh, important to keep in mind that it's a two tier network, and so what that means is that there is a bank to bank element of it. And then there is also、um, the the retail side of it, and so、uh, effectively,、um, at, you know, individuals can open up wallets and and have their、uh, their digital renminbi in that wallet and、uh, use that to transact. But at the same time,、uh, if you think about it, right, as, as more and more individuals 
pay using digital RMB. It increases the amount of RMB, digital RMB in the system. And uh, that by necessity um, will, will lead to a uh, you know, certain level of institutional transactions. And so I think as we step back and just think of CBDCs, ECNY, payments more broadly, there's an important distinction between the uh, the retail volume, the business to consume, um, the consumer to business or consumer to consumer payments versus those business to business payments. And why is China uh, looking to? Why is China pursuing um, digital yuan? What are the drivers or what are the motivations? Right. So it there's. A number of motivations. I think that's one of the reasons why I, I first started following this um, when I when I was living in Beijing, and and it's it's a very uh, it, it's a perfect example of where there's various policymakers who have different motivations who are supportive of the idea. So, uh, for one major motivation is a domestic. Focus right, and it's uh, it's it's for for quite some time there's been concerns by individuals in the Chinese financial regulatory community about the 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 power that large and internet conglomerates have over the payments rails there over the and you know while it is certainly the case that a large share of of Chinese payment uh, retail payments are are still in cash uh, of of the third-party payments providers, it's dominated by two very large firms. And, and that is why uh, you know, a number of folks at the PBOC have had uh, concerns because from their view, those internet conglomerates have not always been the most responsive to uh, the, the, the regulatory um, expectations of folks at the PBOC. So that's, that's one motivation. Uh, I think certainly there's another motivation that this has almost become somewhat of a, um, you know, there's been a promise that this would be done. And so that then leads to a need to get it done. And it's become a, a you know, a, a, a self, um, self-reinforcing cycle. And then there, there's certainly also an element of this has been viewed as a, a, a means by which the, uh, the, renminbi denominated cross border payments can 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 uh, be conducted via a, a beijing based financial infrastructure now that's that's certainly more of a medium term goal there has been pushback on that in the past of 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 you know when the renminbi uh, the digital renminbi first came out certain you know there was pushback on the idea that this was had cross border Implications, but the most when when the, the PBOC finally put out its ECNY white paper, it did make note of the fact that the ECNY is "quote unquote" ready for cross border use. Uh, but that, of course, um, that 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 fact is, of course, against the backdrop of Chinese capital controls, restrictions on cross border uh, RMB usage more broadly, um, and uh, and other dynamics. So. Those are just some of the motivations. I think what's what's really been interesting to see is as the um, as we started with the the, the small the smaller pilots in um, twenty twenty and of or, you know now it's twenty twenty two. It's it's really interesting to see how um, the, the the range of institutions that have been involved in the ECNY network and how that continues to grow. So um, yeah. 
Thanks, thanks for that, Robert, because, uh, uh, you know, the next question was to ask you, um, you know, uh, if you could give us a sense of where China has reached in its goal to formally launch the digital yuan for both domestic and cross-border use. You know, I'd mentioned at the introduction to the session that, uh, uh, you know, there was this expectation of a grand debut of the digital yuan at the Winter Olympics, which was perhaps stymied uh, due to the, you know, another outbreak of COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but uh, PBOC officials in recent statements have claimed that an equivalent of um, you know $315,000 have been transacted in digital yuan every day at the Olympics. So, you know, how significant is this? And uh, where do you think China is in its goal to formally launch the digital yuan? Yeah, it's, it's important to put those numbers in perspective. I mean, as a share of the transaction volume that's currently conducted via Alipay or WeChat Pay, the digital RMB's payments flow is actually quite, quite small. Um, so it's, you know, we're, we're talking about big numbers here. And so even though that's a, you know, there, there, it is a, an objectively large number that has uh, payments that have gone through the, um, you know, digital RMB payments network, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very small number when compared to the amount of payments flow that's gone through uh, the, the large third-party payments providers. I think another thing to uh, also bear in mind is that the ECNY thus far remains a, a fairly urban phenomenon. And uh, you know, in China, uh, you know, r- rural areas account for about 40% of the population. And uh, the, the banking relationships that, that people in rural areas have versus people in urban areas are, are quite different. And so, you, you, again, going back to that 10 plus 1 concept where the pilots have been thus far, um, it, it concentrates on, on, on urban centers. And so I think one of the big things to watch, and uh, from, if we're just only looking at the ECNY from a, from a China inward perspective, is uh, the you know how will Chinese policymakers roll out this this payments network in, in rural areas? Um, again, keeping in mind that there's a large share of Chinese uh, retail payments that are still in cash. So, what do you think are the challenges or impediments? Uh, you know, you mentioned one in terms of the large uh, internet conglomerates. Um, they are the incumbents. And um, uh, and also the rural areas where there are embedded relationships uh, already with the banking sector. Um, the reason I ask this question is um, India is also looking to introduce its own CBDC. And one of the questions that has come up is what specific advantages uh, does an Indian CBDC have uh, or offer, given that we have a vibrant payments ecosystem that exists here already? So, um you know, um, your thoughts on what steps do you think China will take to increase the adoption, the wider adoption of digital yuan, and what might be the challenges besides the two that you have mentioned, if there are any? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting, I, there, there's a lot of debate in, in Beijing about this, at, you know, the, the, the pace with which the digital renminbi would be um, distributed nationwide, how it would be distributed nationwide. I, I'll, I'll make a few notes. I think, first of all, I'll caveat everything with, um, with saying, you know, China's approach here, and, you know, there, there's certainly, you know, it's worth watching and, and perhaps there are certain lessons to be learned. But I think each country's, uh, circumstances and each country's, you know, uh, internal political dynamics are different here. Um, 
so, but that, that having been said, I think one of the, you know, as I was alluding to earlier, I think one of the biggest question marks is, is simply, you know, a, a, you know, a lot of people in, in rural China, I think it's, you know, 40% of its rural population primarily bank with one of the thousands of rural financial institutions or city commercial banks um, out there in China. And, you know, that th- those institutions are distinct, right, from the, the big, large state-owned banks that um, have, have up to now been more, you know, thought of as being associated with the ECNY. So one of the questions is, let's suppose I am living in rural China and I have an account at a rural credit cooperative. And that rural credit cooperative, right, has, you know, um, you know, relatively small. And then all of a sudden, um, this ECNY, you know, and I, I primarily, go, you know, my day-to-day, I'm using cash to transact. So the ECNY is rolled out. Um, the question becomes, why would I switch to using that? I think we, we, we often think of ECNY through a policy lens. It's important also to think through a, you know, just like with any product, any, you know, what's the business case for ECNY if I'm in, in, from the user's perspective, right? So what does the user get um, that they don't get from a cash transaction in that, in that concept? Because I think we often think about the ECNY as a competitor to the large third-party payment providers. But, um, you know, at the same time, it's going to be a, I think a lot of its uptake in rural areas will depend on, um, you know, why one would use it instead of using cash. And I think that that's where policymakers really have to make um, a choice. And, and it's also as applicable to third-party payments providers' um, com- com- competition angle is, you know, what levers will policymakers be willing to pay to incentivize, uh, to pull, levers are willing to pull in order to incentivize use of ECNY. And there's a number of options, right? There, there could be, um, you know, discounts on certain goods and services. There could be, um, you know, making sure that merchant fees are lower for ECNY transactions. That's not applicable to cash, but that would be applicable in the third-party payments providers um, context. And so that is a that is an open question. And I think, uh, and then another open question is, is for those people in, in rural areas who are banked primarily by the rural credit cooperatives or smaller financial institutions, what exactly does the on-ramp, off-ramp look like between money in your ECNY wallet on your on your mobile device and uh, money in your account at your small financial institution? And there's been a you know incremental um, work done towards kind of thinking that through. And it wouldn't surprise me in the least if this new round of pilots by um, Chinese authorities start to explore how exactly, you know, in, in greater detail, again, it's been explored somewhat, but it starts to explore in greater detail um, how exactly those relationships will, will work and, and with an eye towards a, a scalable uh, way in which, you know, people in rural areas can get ECNY. I'll just add another, another concern there, right, though, is... Um, Let's suppose that, you know, some of these smaller financial institutions have troubles, right? I mean, these are, you know, there's been a, a number of, of, of smaller or mid-sized financial institutions in China that have had issues. So in the event of a banking crisis or at one of these institutions or, a, you know, what then there is this, this question as to, well, would the ability to just get on one's phone and withdraw money from your rural credit cooperative 
into your ECNY wallet, is that actually going to increase fragility in the Chinese banking system? Um, and so I think that is certainly a concern that policymakers are weighing. One way that they would address that is, is have caps on withdrawal limits. But then, um, you know, yeah, so I, I mean, I, you know, you can, you can go down this rabbit hole of kind of con- continuing to think about the, the trade-offs of all these various choices that have to be made. And I think that the, the kind of stepping back, the bigger point to make is just there's a lot of choices that need to be made. Um, in terms of the structure of, of the ECNY network for it to eventually uh, proliferate and, and, um, and in the eyes of Chinese policymakers be a success. And, and so those are, you know, since this is a relative, quite a top-down um, system, those decisions need to be made at the PBOC. And uh, I think we can expect those to, you know, increasingly as pilots grow to be, um, you know, those, those decisions to be made more clear. Right, like you said, this is a space to watch, um, and it's and, and I'm glad you brought up the reference to cash, uh, because uh, I wanted to sort of uh, dive uh, deeper into one specific aspect, which is um, you know the concept of controllable or controlled anonymity, which has been associated with the digital yuan. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that means and what its implications are to consumers and businesses operating in China? And uh, do you think this is or has been an impediment uh, to widespread adoption or likely to be? Yeah, so well, I'll speak at first to what, what, what is meant by that term. Um, you know, I think it's, it's important to cast the ECNY against this, this broader concept in China of quote unquote, um, uh, by authorities for quote unquote financial security. And, um, you know, one, one element of this, 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 What's called financial security is, uh, you know, the, the fusion of efforts by state security organs um, and and financial regulators to detect what is perceived to be, you know, financial crime, right? And 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 in some cases, uh, you know, that that is, you know, under, you know, that in some cases that's capital control avoidance, in other cases that's, um, you know. Uh, you know, issues with regards to a sufficient amount of taxes being paid, et cetera. And so I think one of the ways in which, you know, the, looking at the ECNY, another, again, um, against the, the broader backdrop of other policy efforts in China, again, I, I think that the ECNY represents a, a the, it came into existence because a number of policymakers saw benefits to, to this um, and wanted to, you know, piloted and, and experimented with what, you know, one of the things we've heard um, discussed is, you know, the CCP's Central Commission for Discipline Inspection and um, State Supervision Commission. Um, they've put out, uh, you know, a commentary saying that the, you know, EC and line network structure will give the state greater ability to control and monitor financial flows. So I think that when we're thinking about controllable anonymity, what that effectively entails is that, um, Ultimately, the the payments flows are rather than the authorities having to go t- to one of the large third party payment providers for information on you know particular payment flow or for in order to um, you know get information about a certain person they deem suspicious, certain transaction they deem suspicious. That that information is at the PBOC, and the PBOC um, would would uh, presumably apply uh, you know analytics capacities in real time to monitor for what is suspicious transactions. And, and so you know, there, there, 
yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think ultimately this, this all plays into why, um, there, there are, you know, I think cer- certain people, uh, there's certainly consumers in China who I think are um, worried about the, the the privacy element here, but I, I think there there is a recognition that the there it's 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 not as if using you know one of the existing third party payment providers um, is a is a privacy protecting thing to do, right? I mean, it 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 really boils down to who do you want to have your data, and and interestingly enough, some of the the rhetoric around ECNY in China has almost cast the, um, you know, the, the, the ECNY again, in the eyes of, um, uh, certain commentators as a, as a more desirable alternative, um, from looking at, uh, payments from the privacy lens. And so that, that's an interesting, that's been a very interesting thing to see, uh, but it, it certainly is a case going back to something I was saying earlier that the 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 one of the motivations is this tension that has existed between regulators and those third party payment providers with regards to um, the ability to access data that authorities want. But you did mention also that the you know um, there is large cash usage. Cash, of course, is anonymous. So. Um, do you think Chinese will find it, the Chinese government will find it difficult to sort of uh, persuade that section of the society to uh, move to digital yuan? Yeah, so I, I think that is interestingly an, an area where there is um, public debate. I mean, one of the, the, what I have found quite notable to see from, again, from the retail uh, consumer oriented side of things in China with regards to ECNY is that there are some who actually are very vocal about how there's a lot of, they're very concerned about how there's an increasing propensity for, you know, certain stores, right. To not accept cash. And there was this one video that went viral not too long ago where, um, uh, an elderly gentleman was, was trying to use cash transacted a store and he wasn't able to. And, um, you know, there have been a number of of, rump, uh, of 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 statements that authorities have put out saying, "Look, cash is still legal tender in China. You 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 know there has to be an acceptance of cash." And I think Chinese authorities are wary of the fact that such a large share of transactions are in cash that this isn't necessary. You know that 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 is not something that needs to be. Um, th- th- that's not so much the policy. That's not viewed as so much as the policy problem that ECNY is trying to solve. I don't think that Chinese authorities view that as so much as the policy problem. I mean, in in some contexts, you know, certainly. Uh, I mean, to to a certain extent, they, they, that that is that is viewed as something that would you know that can facilitate uh, financial crime. Um, However, that is not the, I, I think, the, the main motivation here, at least from the domestic context. I think that it's more about the third-party payment providers. And uh, is the concept of controllable anonymity different from how other countries like the United States, for example, are viewing or discussing um, questions around anonymity and privacy of CBDC transactions? Yeah, so I think it's difficult to draw parallels between the Chinese Um Discussion about controllable anonymity and those of 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 you know 
countries such as the uh, United States or, or other, um, you, know, um, you know, frankly, you know, countries where there are um, you know, greater privacy protections more broadly, uh, I think, and, and more of a rule of law, I should say, I think that where it is, um, you know, the, to drill down a bit more on the controllable anonymity concept, I mean, you know, in a 2019 speech, Xi Jinping talked about, you know, the need for control, you know, you know, through the, again, this concept of financial security, the, the, the need for you know, controlling people, watching money, tightening the system, firewall. Um, there, there's been a lot of talk, I think, just about the need to have a better sense domestically of, um, you know, how these, how, how money is flowing through these third party payment providers. And I, I, and I, and I've been drawing that contrast a lot. I should, I should be more clear. I mean, this is one of the, the things that, that Chinese policymakers seem to have gone back and forth on over the last few years as they conceptualize ECMY was what's the role that the third party payment providers are going to have with regards to the ECMY network. And the compromise that looks that at least now has been reached is that those institute, those, the third party payment providers, providers, their bank affiliates, you know, are, are participants in the ECNY network. Um, and that eventually one will be able to use those, um, systems to, to conduct ECNY payments. However, uh, the, the, the kind of back end, what that looks like on the back end is going to be fundamentally different because rather than the payments infrastructure being housed in a, um, you know, internet conglomerates, actually the, the back end infrastructure is, 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 is state run. You know, the next question I have is, and this has been again bandied about as well. Um, um, China uh, seems to be in a fairly advanced stage of its pilots uh, for digital yuan. Does it give uh, China a first mover advantage, especially, especially in terms of setting global standards? Because we've seen some of the largest central banks, including the Fed announce, I think it was a uh, last year or the year before, foundational principles that must govern issuance of a CBDC. But we haven't yet seen a lot of traction on a digital dollar. Um, so two questions. One, is there a first mover advantage to China? Um, and two, do you see the fact that, uh, you know, some of the larger central banks like the Fed not um, gaining a lot of traction on digital dollar as a problem? Yeah, so let's I'll start with the, you know, the, the, the first question of the standard setting question. I mean, here is where I think we have to then start to kind of think about CBDC in two, two lights. One is the, the, the this retail transaction side of things. And the other is the cross-border payments, wholesale, large value commercial payments side of things. So I think... Um, to the extent that another country wants to import this idea of controllable anonymity and has circumstances quite similar to China, um, you know, one could see how in those set of circumstances, the ECNY would, you know, I mean, that, 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 that model could be something that would be uh, desirable. But I, I think that... In, in most cases, I, the the idea that the 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 PBC is going to be a standard setter, I think where that's most relevant is actually in the the wholesale um, context and the cross border payments context. So, in particular, the the multi CBDC arrangement that the PBOC is working on 
with Bank of Thailand and Hong Kong Monetary Authority, and UAE's Monetary Authority. Um, in that context, interestingly enough, the PBOC is in charge of the Technology Committee. And um, these multi-CBDC arrangements are interesting because um, you know, fundamentally what these, these entail is, is the ability of you know, CBDCs to be used in cross-border contexts because there's a, a kind of common governance agreement between uh, monetary authorities as to, as to kind of how uh, foreign exchange transactions, cross-border payment flows that involve at some, at some point the, 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 the transfer of one currency into another currency. The, the, there are these arrangements whereby that's agreed upon with a goal of um, reducing um, reliance on uh, existing financial infrastructure and, and basically allowing you know central banks and regions where right now there's a high reliance on dollar denominated uh, payments to enable those jurisdictions to to reduce that that usage. Is um, if that's not a stated out, um, goal, it's a it's an implicit um, outcome. And, and, and yeah, so I think that the PBOC's involvement in those efforts is very important to watch. And that's, um, you know, then, then to your point on kind of the Fed and, and the, you know, what about a digital dollar? I mean, look, I think the, the U.S. is, you know, the, the, US, the, the amount of people in the U.S. who are banked, the amount of people in the U.S. with Internet access, the amount of, I mean, there, there's so many different things about the U.S.'s financial system relative to China that, you know, at least from the retail CBDC angle, uh, you know, there's been back of the envelopes out there, back of the envelope calculations out there about the need for a retail CBDC that, um, that indicate that, 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 um, that, 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 that indicate that the, what, you know, if to the extent that policymakers are trying to increase financial inclusion in the U S um, you know, the, these, these estimates are asking what, what, whether if, rolling out a CBDC domestically is, is the appropriate sol- solution there. Um, but in the wholesale context, in the cross-border payments con- context, I think where we're increasingly going to see policy debates and, and questions as to what, what happens next um, is, is, is this, this idea of how is our, you know, what systems, what infrastructure are going to facilitate cross-border payments flows. Um, and, Will it continue to be the um, existing SWIFT infrastructure, the existing large value payment systems that are dollar, um, you know, that facilitate dollar flows, or will we see uh, certain countries, particularly in East and Southeast Asia, uh, you know, roll out infrastructure that aims to uh, create alternatives, and and how will the U.S. and other policymakers um, globally respond to those efforts. And should that happen, uh, if you do see the emergence of an alternative payment ecosystem, as you just mentioned, would a digital dollar be part of the um, you know plan or arsenal that US would be looking at? Is it necessary? Is I think what uh, I'm trying to understand. Well, you know, it, it could be. I mean, I think any any digital dollar, the the devil's in the details, right? I, I think. There, you know, what, what I mean, I think policymakers in the U.S. will increasingly, especially, you know, given the, uh, the ongoing events um, related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, and the, 
how this this how this is all really illustrated the, the the geopolitical advantages that the U.S. derives from having uh, the powerable that the power to use really you know strong sanctions, having that 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 power in its um, its toolkit and its policy making toolkit. I think this all underscores the um, you know kind of the need to think through. Okay, well, th- there's very clearly efforts afoot to to reduce the ability, the U.S.'s ability to, to have, to, to use that power. Now, reasonable people can disagree as to, um, you know, how successful China will be at, at developing cross-border payment off ramps, um, from the, from the U.S. dollar, uh, the U.S., um, you know, U.S., um, you know, cross-border payments infrastructure. So there, you know, there, there's definitely, uh, reason, you know, reasonable people can disagree there. I think without a doubt though, there's a very clear um, intention to develop alternatives. And that's, you know, you, you, you've seen that just in the last few days in light of, um, you know, seven Russian institutions being disconnected from SWIFT uh, and uh, the U.S. implementing sanctions on certain Russian banks, um, even though there are, you know, energy related transaction exemptions to those sanctions, the, 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 the commentary in China has very much, much of it, I should say, has has particularly from certain state-owned financial institutions, researchers at those institutions, has has really spoke to uh, fears that um, exist in China that that one day those sanctions could be used, um, you know, in in a greater way, um, in a in a circumstance involving China, and also um, have spoken to just uh, a broader desire of China to to have those, um, um, you know, to to have off ramps. I, I want to stay on that a little bit. Um, so, you know, there were reports that at the Winter Olympics, a majority of the foreign athletes um, prefer to make payments through Visa cards rather than use digital yuan. This seems to sort of reflect some amount of mistrust of the Chinese technology, especially, you know, perhaps when it comes to data privacy and regulatory scrutiny. Um, so the question uh, is, to what extent do you think such mistrust affects the growth of China's digital yuan internationally? Uh, I, I think it certainly does, right? And I mean that's a that's an important thing to to watch. I mean that that that's certainly one element of of all this. And the other element, of course, being kind of just cost and the business case for using one payments channel versus another, right? So, I mean, you know, you 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 there there is like so. Take for example what happened. Um, you know, last year with regards to, you know, new sanctions against, uh, the, the Burmese military government, um, and, and people involved in that, um, that, you know, Ch- China's state owned bank affiliate, um, in Yangon, um, basically, you know, a Chinese uh, state media mouthpiece put out, um, uh, you know, an explanation of that, that the, 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 you know, it's Chinese state-owned financial institution, and and uh, is going to you know start to allow you know increased um, ability of, of of Burmese businesses to have uh, accounts at, at at a Chinese state-owned bank, and that that in turn is going to allow you know certain U.S. sanctions to be avoided. Similarly, uh, the the you know um, you know in in, in September twenty twenty one. After the you know, Shanghai Cooperation Organization was 
um, accelerating its efforts to, you know, increase local settlement. Uh, you know, commentators, again, in, in, in Chinese state media outlets made the point that, okay, well, this use of local currencies can, can help bypass potential U.S. sanctions. And so I think I, I bring that all up in the context as, as one driver for increased local settlement usage will, I think, certainly in China's eyes, be the ability to go to countries or organizations that are, are fearful of U.S. implementing sanctions and saying, look, this is an off-ramp. Um, however, to your point, then, and this is something that um, one, of, uh, one, of my, uh, one of our Carnegie colleagues said the other day, is, is that uh, what this, you know, China is also, I think, looking at the U.S.'s toolkit um, its financial sanctions toolkit is, is quite envious of those tools it, 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 itself, and, and 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 I think certainly policymakers in Beijing would like to have that uh, that ability down the road. So, one of the questions, I mean, I, I think you nailed it with that question is 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 to what extent um, you know certain countries in the region are willing to use the renminbi as a vehicle currency or as a payments currency for large value payments. I would say though, then one 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 the, then this leads to a question of how much, what policy levers, again, similar to the retail payments discussion, what policy levers is Beijing willing to pull through um, you know, state-owned financial institutions to really make the economics of using the digital renminbi, or for that matter, other renminbi-denominated payments channels um, for cross-and-cross-border context? What, what, what levers is it willing to pull to, to increase the desirability of that from a cost structure perspective? And I think that will be something to watch, right? Because, um, and this would then play into the just basically a trade off that China's trading partners would have to make, which is, you know, to what extent, you know, if, if China gets, if it gets to the point where Beijing is heavily incentivizing certain trading partners to use the renminbi um, as, a, as a payments instrument, then that would be quite notable. I'll just caveat all that with saying I, you know, one thing that people always note is, well, China has strict capital controls, and it does. I think what's important, though, is you know already a, you know a decent share of, of Chinese exports and imports are, are invoiced in renminbi. It's certainly not inconsistent with China's five-year plan, uh, Beijing five-year plan of, of of steadily and prudently um, internationalizing the RMB for you know an increasing share of imports and exports to be denominated in renminbi. So it. We we can see that it's certainly plausible to imagine a situation where, you know, Beijing-based payments infrastructure is increasingly used for that that share of transactions that's renminbi denominated already. That that not being that 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 is certainly consistent with the kind of current policy trajectory with regards to renminbi internationalization. So we're not talking about the RMB becoming a, a you know a global currency overnight. I think what we're talking about. It is a desire, at least by certain people at the PBSC, to turn the renminbi into a regional currency that's much more popular with regards to um, invoicing and um, exports and imports involving China. You have, I think, in the recent past mentioned that uh, Beijing's CBDC efforts could spur the proliferation of a new cross-border payments infrastructure, which could undermine U.S. interests. Um, more recently, you've suggested that the recent events in um, um, uh, Ukraine are likely to change the geopolitical landscape of cross-border payments and also accelerate Beijing's digital yuan plans. Um, what I wanted to ask is if you could please expand on what this alternative cross-border payments infrastructure comp comprises of 
and how integral a role is the digital yuan expected to play within? And um, uh, the reason I ask is that, you know, you mentioned how, uh, you know, uh, transacting with sanctioned countries could be one pathway for uh, China to push um, the use of um, the increased use of uh, digital yuan. But China has had transactions with sanctioned countries in the past before, you know, the digital yuan has uh, come into play. It isn't in play today. Um, so what I'm trying to understand is what advantage or what improvement does the digital yuan provide um, within this ecosystem, cross-border payment ecosystem or infrastructure ecosystem that China is building? Yeah, so that, that's a fantastic question. And I think it really gets to the heart of the matter, right? So there are, I, I think the short way of putting it, answering that is China's, that Beijing currently is exploring a number of cross-border payment channel ideas that each of which um, aims in one way or another to give Beijing greater control over the financial infrastructure used to conduct cross-border payments. Now, some of those um, strategies are kind of more longer term and are going to, uh, let's say, don't necessarily have a, a, a the same likelihood of success as other strategies, right? And so, you know, kind of thinking of some of them more as a, um, you know, high impact, low probability of success, and some of them are higher impact of success, lower, um, lower impact. But I think uh, across the board, the broader rhetoric, the broader tone of a, a lot of individuals, not all, I should definitely caveat with saying not all, but a lot of individuals in the in Beijing's kind of financial services policy making community, and again, individuals at some of the state and financial institutions, a lot of the rhetoric is around this need for alternatives. And um, to, so to, to more now dive deeper into your question, by no means is the digital remedy the only um, uh, the only off ramp that China is contemplating. And I would actually go as far to say that I think. Um, the 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 way the, the way in which the digital remedy would most likely I think become an effective off ramp would would by necessity I mean it, it would, would by necessity involve kind of the ability to communicate with other um, you know financial institutions outside of China and and so that's where I think the multi CBDC arrangement that China is contemplating would be um, an illustrative example of something that involve CBDCs and, and and would advance these goals of, of achieving alternative payments channels. But there again, you know, it's the governance channels, the government governance challenges with a multi-CBDC arrangement are significant. Um, so then I think that's what causes China to think, uh, you know, some of Beijing to, to think about, well, okay, what are some of the alternatives? And so you have, there's been a lot of talk where recently about the CIPS, this alternative payments rail and, uh, that the alternative payments messaging system that, um, uh, that 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 China has and how it currently relies a lot on SWIFT though, and so what about the then there's an effort to eventually have CIPS not rely on SWIFT as much. So that's another example. So and then there's the whole network of state-owned bank affiliates and how the state-owned bank affiliates could be um, means by which uh, China is able to facilitate increased renminbi denominated transactions without relying on either, you know, SWIFT or on, um, you know, and just only relying really on its homegrown financial infrastructure. That, of course, necessitates that 
Um, there's increased banking relationships overseas with those uh, those state-owned bank affiliates. So that's another avenue. And then, you know, to that end, you've seen, um, you know, just just recently you saw uh, Yigong, the the head of the PBOC, uh, you know, pledge Beijing support for increase local currency settlement um, in Asia in February 2022, G20 finance ministers, central bank governors meeting. So I think there, there, there's various gradations, various approaches that um, that that Beijing is contemplating to increase RMB denominated settlement activity. Um, you know, certainly not the case that the uh, the, the digital RMB will be the first out of the gate. I think it's part of a broader, um, you know, strategic vision by some in Beijing to to build out alternative payments channels. Why do you think uh, such an alternative, uh, you know, payments infrastructure, which is randomly denominated, could pose a real challenge to the dollar-dominated system? Uh, could you sort of maybe, uh, you know, dwell a, li- dwell a little bit on the security implications that it could pose to U.S. as well as other countries, say like India? Yeah, well, I think um, you know, it's it's all very um, you know, we're very early in this, and so it, it's it's difficult to. Uh, you know, I, I I think it's difficult to project where all this is is going to go in the in the very long term. I, I do think w- one thing I would feel confident saying is that events of the last few weeks, uh, we're you know recording this on March seventh. Uh, I think events of the last few weeks have at least accelerated Beijing's desire to build out this alternative payments infrastructure a lot. You know, to, to that the, the question you asked previously, a lot of this hinges on the trust that other in, in, um, central banks and other market participants are going to place in Beijing, and and also it, a lot of this decision tree is, is is based also on market circumstances and the desirability of using other payments channels and and what steps that the U.S. and the EU are going to take to increase the um, desirability of the dollar and the euro as um, payments and invoicing currencies. And there, there's plenty of things that can be done to increase the desire of uh, the dollar and euro as, as as invoicing currencies that don't relate to CBDC. And I, you know, I think policymakers in both the U S and in Brussels are aware of these and are, are, are just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a different policymaking um, uh Approach in, in in Brussels and Washington as it is in Beijing, and so um, it I I just because there hasn't been action yet doesn't doesn't well that's, I wouldn't even go as far as say there hasn't been action yet just because um, steps towards this end of improving cross border payments infrastructure in the U.S. and Brussels have been um, you know it's it's a very deliberate process um, just because it's proceeding that way I, I don't think that that necessarily means um, in the long term. There, there won't be significant steps taken. I, I think policymakers, especially again, and given the events of the last few weeks, increasingly understand the importance of cross-border payments, and particularly in the wholesale business-to-business context. And, and you know, earlier you mentioned that it's certainly plausible to uh, plausible that we will see an alternative randomly denominated payment systems, and you know, in in in, uh, in the near future. Um, but how plausible is it? Because um, arguably, uh, given the recent financial sanctions package, a um, couple of which have actually been discussed as a you know the financial nuclear option, 
against Russia is also likely to spur other countries to think about and uh, you know begin to develop maybe their own independent alternatives, which perhaps are not amenable to either the dollar or the renminbi domination. Um, so, do you see how do you see the CBDC landscape developing? Um, is it going to be dominated by two models, uh, dominated by the dollar or renminbi, or are you going to see a lot of fragmentation, or is it too early to you know sort of talk about it? Well, I, I do think, I mean, it, it certainly is early, but I, I do think this is what you're, the question you're asking to speaks to Beijing's interest in, in multi-CBDC arrangements, because I think fundamentally, let, you know, let's, there, there, there's a lot of rhetoric in, in Southeast Asia about the, uh, an interest in increasing local currency settlement. Um, fundamentally, what that necessitates is, um, you know, more efficient and, and, and lower cost foreign exchange transactions involving uh, local currencies. And so I think at the end of the day, what, what's, what, what, what matters uh, is, is the cost structure of a cross-border payment, right? So, I mean, the sanction, you know, the, 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 the you know, sanctions avoidance and, and those issues are, are, you know, certainly if you're blocked from one transaction channel, that that changes your cost calculus, but putting that aside, if we're just competing on on um, you know on what payments channel a commercial entity is going to select to transact with another commercial entity, it, it really boils down to cost, and that really boils down to um, you know what what you know are there any steps that policymakers are taking to make that particular payments channel more desirable and. You know, one thing that some in Beijing have talked about is is the the idea of the renminbi becoming this regional currency that's used for um, invoicing across Southeast Asia, and that ultimately the foreign exchange costs of of, of you know the the renminbi relative to um, you know Southeast Asian local currencies would be relative um, would be you know significantly lower than today. Um, you know, that 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 all you know that, that we'll have to see whether those policy outcomes are achieved. But what, as it stands now, at least, I think you know when you look at the source of why the U.S. dollar is used as a payments instrument so broadly. I mean, one is is you know as as we've alluded to is a rule of law and, and trust in and trust in the U.S. system. Um, also, is the cost structure right? It's it's you know it's a highly liquid currency. Transact you know, most you know the vast majority of FX transactions involve the dollar on one side of the trade, and liquidity begets more liquidity, right? And so that it's, it becomes self-reinforcing. And so that it, you know, I, I I do think to the extent that policymakers in Beijing are trying to chip away at that, um, it, it, it will be a challenge, and I think they realize that. Um, so it, it's going to be very interesting to watch um, what type of initiatives are are. Are accelerated and and how exactly Beijing plans to uh, address those market dynamics. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today and for this enlightening discussion on the implications of China's digital yuan. Thanks. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.